The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Chinese Whispers with me, Cindy Yu. Every episode, I'll be talking to journalists, experts and long-time China watchers about the latest in Chinese politics, society and more. There'll be a smattering of history to catch you up on the background knowledge and some context as well. How do the Chinese see these issues? Outside of China, tiger mums and tiger dads are famous or infamous. But inside of China, the strict parenting style also arguably yields results. 15-year-olds in Shanghai consistently outperform the rest of the world in their PISA scores on maths and reading, PISA being the OECD's programme for international student assessment, which means that even the poorest student in Shanghai is doing better academically in these subjects than the richest in the UK. And at higher education, on some counts, China has surpassed America in terms of the number of top international universities. But at what cost does this educational attainment come? That's the topic of this episode of Chinese Whispers, taking a look at the philosophy, the sacrifices and the results of the Chinese education system. My guest today is Lenora Chu, who's a Chinese-American journalist and author of the book Little Soldiers, An American Boy, A Chinese School and the Global Race to Achieve. Welcome to the podcast, Lenora. To start with, I think the premise of your book is quite interesting, and it's it's all about your son who was put into a top Shanghai primary school and your experiences there. So can you tell us about it? Well, we moved to Shanghai about a decade ago, and this was when the U.S. was down in the doldrums. And with the economy, we were in the midst of a recession. And we landed in Shanghai the year that Shanghai kids were declared number one in the world on an education test called PISA. So there was a lot of international media attention focused on Shanghai, and we happened to enroll our son in the local school system that same year. So my sort of journalistic instincts kicked in, and I started taking notes. And you write about how you pretty much overnight saw changes in your son to become more typical of what you might think a Chinese student would be like. My parents are Chinese, but we've been in America, my family, for, you know, 70 years, 60, 40, 50, 60 years now. And so I was born and raised in the U.S., and I thought I had this conception of what a Chinese education would be, but I was not prepared for what, what the experience was like. So we're not supposed to talk back to the teachers. I had a lot of much of the first part of my book is just exploring this cultural conflict of what it's like to be an American in, in a very authoritarian Chinese system, which is changing. But at the time, this is a decade ago, it had not changed enough yet. And in your book, that took you to look at not just primary education, but also secondary education and how people get into university. Is that right? So were the findings that you found for primary school, were they kind of same throughout the stages in later education? Yeah, you know, eventually I realized, you know, as a journalist to make this a complete work about education, culture in China, I really needed other voices and I needed Chinese voices. So I eventually found a couple of high school students that I followed through their journeys. I found a middle school student, you know, as you know, the high school entrance exam is actually more monumental for more families in China. And I wanted to make sure I captured that anxiety around this test that you take as a 15 or 16 year old. So all of that is in the book, and I feel like it's a very complete, and I've been told it's a complete 
you know, sort of picture of, of the themes. And so let's talk about some of those themes then. You've already mentioned one, which is authority. And I think the reverse way of looking at that is discipline. I myself went to school in China until about year three. And I remember that one of the biggest cultural shocks for me coming to the UK to do primary school was the fact that there were students just slouching on their desks. I don't know what it's like in America, but in China, you have to kind of sit very upright uh, in Chinese speech, upright as a pen. And I came here into primary school and I sat like that and all the other kids were looking at me like, what's wrong with this girl? But yes, they say the authority comes from the teacher and students are not necessarily fearing their teacher, but maybe some, some of them are. But certainly there's a very top down, there's not a friendly relationship there, I would say. Is that, do you, is that what you found as well? Oh, definitely. I think I saw a definite fear in my children and also a fear or a respect, you know, there's a spectrum, you know, as as the kids got older, I felt that there's a real respect for the teachers and there are habits that develop that you don't see in the U.S. where I grew up. For example, kids going to visit their teachers every year. When they're 25, they still go back to visit their high school teachers. There's a bond that's forged and just by the nature of how the classroom is structured, oftentimes you have a homeroom teacher and that teacher stays with you throughout your middle school, your high school career. All of these things give the teacher quite a lot of power, but also a lot of respect. And that makes it easy for the teacher, right? When you walk into your classroom, your kids are prepared. The pencils are out on the desk. They're sitting ramrod straight. When you raise your hand, it goes straight up at a 90 degree angle and it's resting on your left hand. I mean, everything's very formulaic. But what the Chinese believe is that then opens up your mind for study. It opens up for the important things. I interviewed a lot of American teachers as part of my work, and they were saying, look, half of my job is behavior management. You know, that's taken out of the equation for Chinese teachers, and I think that's really helpful. Now, of course, for every positive side, there's the negative side, which is when you start looking at creative expression, the way that the average classroom is structured, there's not a lot of room for kids to really be themselves or express a contrarian view. That's been proven in research, right? So there are some negative connotations there, but also positive. So, I think you're right in that, you know, this philosophy of the teachers know best or the adults know best really kind of underlies everything. And one of the anecdotes from your book, for example, is how your son was force fed eggs, even though he didn't like to eat eggs. And what I found fascinating about that was what the teacher said back to you, which is that eggs are good nutrition and all young children must eat them. So they have in their minds this idea of what's good for the child. And even if the child doesn't want it, you're going to get it. That's right. That extends to pretty much everything, like nap time. By the time my son was seven years old, they still required him to nap for two and a half hours a day. Western literature, healthy sleep habits, happy child, you know, the nap starts to disappear. So I march off to to confront the teacher and she says, all children must nap for two and a half hours. So I had no choice. I mean, he's either in the system or he's out. And if you're in, that means he lies still. And he's 12 now, but he still remembers stories of being forced to lie there for two and a half hours. He said he would sort of lie still with his arm by his sides, but he would look around the room and find interesting things to look at. If there wasn't a teacher in the room, he would actually crawl off his bed and go play with other um, toys in the cubbies. You know, it's funny. In that story is the clear power of authoritarianism, but also the way that you find a workaround when somebody is not watching. And I think that's a really important part of the culture as well. When you're too authoritarian, the kids find a way around. So I don't know. Sometimes I think that creativity is driven by authoritarianism in that culture. There was a saying, I don't want to blanket stereotype, but there's a saying, and a Chinese person told me this. The Chinese person said, you know, the Chinese can find a way around a brick wall before the cement is even dry. (laughs) And that's because you're so used to working around obstacles. And so it's just a different approach. 
I think that's right. And, and not to deviate too much from the topic at hand, I think it's especially reform and opening, you know, opening up all these different opportunities in the 70s and the 80s economically. You have adults also trying to have work around and that's why you have more, much more corruption, much more lax view of the law, even in adulthood. That probably gets trained from a young age. And I, I was talking to my editor recently about this in relation to COVID regulations. But I actually think a lot of Chinese people don't really value the law that much as long as they don't get caught. It's not a moral authority to them. That's right. I think it's a very different moral system. And it's very easy to judge from the outside. You know, for example, I I was completely shocked by some of the things that I saw that we would consider corruption. But over time, I came to understand that, honestly, when the rules are so rigid to survive, you have to find a way. Right. And, And so I had a much softer approach or understanding of the way the culture works after my research. Mm. And do you think that part of the reason for discipline is also just because of the material differences in China? By that, I mean the class sizes mainly, way larger than probably many people were experiencing in the West. I remember my classes were probably 40, 50 people a class. Yeah, if you really think about education in China, it's a it's a system that's only been around for, say, 50 years, right? They started from scratch, and part of it was modeled on the Soviet system. And they really thought that math and science was the way to modernize China. If you look at what we're used to in the U.S. and U.K., our systems are much more fully developed, right? And I, I do see China's education moving in our direction. In other words, they're introducing the idea of electives. They're trying to find another way to select for college because they believe that the Gaokao, the college entrance exam, is too harsh. They're, they're now trying innovations in ways that they can because they've been able to deliver basic education to mass amounts of people. But that was the original goal, and they've done that pretty well. Now they have to tinker with it because the system is obviously difficult and oppressive from certain angles. And the Chinese realize this. In fact, if you talk to people who have been trying to reform the system for years, they're constantly frustrated because of the National College entrance exam. If everything is geared towards a test, there's very little you can do in the way of reform. But there's now a burgeoning private sector. There's all these there's options. There's now the ability to go abroad. So for certain segments of Chinese students, they have all kinds of options that are now allowing them to experiment. And I would say that an education that you get in a place like Shanghai or Beijing is pretty world class. It's very similar to opportunities, say, in New York or even London. And you mentioned that national higher education exam, which I think we should talk a little bit more about. The Gaokao is a three-day examination period across the entire country for students, uh, 17, 18-year-olds, who want to get into university that year. There are around 10 million students are competing for places every year. Uh, about a quarter of that number will not make it to university because they just haven't quite made it. With that kind of scale, a single mark in the one exam would be the difference between hundreds of thousands of students. So uniform mark schemes are incredibly important, which kind of justifies this sort of rote learning a little bit more, because how else are you meant to judge that mass examination? But it's also an incredibly grueling process, given the importance placed on higher education. And you speak to parents, including my own parents, who took me out of that system because they didn't want me to go through the pressurized years of preparing for the Gaokao. Now your son is in school in Berlin, not in Shanghai anymore. Are you glad that you've taken him out of the secondary school system? You know, it's funny, even if he was never up for the Zhongkao or the Gaokao, the 
elements of the culture that make it hard are still there, like the rabid competition. We were doing it, but as I looked around in our peer group, it seemed like everybody was struggling, but they were doing it too. And I'm I'm confident that we could have done it, (laughs) but like your mother, at some point you look around and you say, well, we have other options, whether it comes by passports or resources, and we're going to choose something different. Now, I have to say, when you land in a place like Berlin, there's a real undercurrent of competition is bad. Capitalism is bad. Materialism is bad. Outward achievement is bad. Everything, there's a sort of element of same, same. So my son lands here and he's used to talking about what did you get on your last math test? How high do you think you could score? All of these things that are are metrics that are just worked into the way you see the world. He had to really retool that because nobody else is talking about that here. It's, It's sort of socially forbidden. So I look at what we've done to him, and I think he's an incredibly resilient child for having to navigate Chinese culture successfully and then come here and navigate German culture. Yeah, and that public competition is very much inherent in Chinese education. You've got notice boards with class results and where you rank in your class. I, I've, my family still asked uh, my brother, who's still in school, how ahead are you in, in the class? Of course, in the West, no one knows because your teachers are not comparing you to your peers in that sort of public way. So there is no first-in-class, second-in-class concept. You know what I'm finding, though? Talking to parents of progressive schools in the U.S., they're saying we've gone too far. Like, they're using metrics like, I is for improving, D is for developing, P is for progressing. The teachers will just say, look, I is A, D is B. You know, they want something that's familiar. And and I contend, how do you know how your kid is doing if you don't have a measure of progress? And I feel like at some point we'll swing back to having metrics again, but maybe friendlier metrics. But I find it very uncomfortable. Maybe it's the, you know, Asian education culture in me, but I really need to know where we are. <laughs> doing tell me that's amazing for your for your sons is that aspirational as well to know okay I just need to work harder and then I will be beating this person in class you know was that a driver well you know what yes but but that's because it's part of the language you show up in class in China and and kids are talking about it teachers are talking about it oftentimes it's you know publicly displayed here when you take away all those outward measures of performance you have to find the internal motivation to keep going and to be honest i found that really difficult because when that community when that community and the language and the and the external pressure is taken away and you don't find it internally then where does it come from you can't be the only one alone saying look it's really important to learn algebra in 6th grade in in china everybody would agree it's really important to learn algebra in 6th grade here it's like oh why you know why I never learned algebra and I'm okay. It's really hard to compete with that. So you end up sort of adopting the measures of the community that you're in. And it's really hard to fight that that tide. Well, I think what's interesting that you pick out in your book is this cultural difference in what you value. In the West, we seem to value talent and genius. And in, in, the, in China, you value hard work. And can you talk a little bit more about that distinction? Yeah, the number one thing that I found that was surprising to me is that you know, in the West, we tend to have to believe that academic ability is innate. In other words, you're born with it. You're either born to do math or you don't have the genes for it. And that's been borne out by longitudinal studies. In Asian cultures, they believe that anybody can do math and science if only you work hard enough, right? It's something that can be accomplished. So if you look at the connotations for that in the classroom, what happens in the West is we te- teachers tend to look at, say, minority students. We have all these stereotypes that come into it. Oh, they're, they're not born to do math. 
you know, Johnny can't do math. It's okay. It's not his fault. Whereas in China, like even honestly, even the poorest family from Hunan believes that their child can eventually go to Tsinghua if they work hard enough. So that ability and effort, that effort gives results, I think, really gives the Chinese a leg up when it comes to academic achievement. And it's so important. Another thing I wanted to talk about was creativity that comes up all the time. I've given talks about education culture in, you know, on four continents now, and inevitably somebody always asks the question, oh, but the Chinese aren't creative. At least we in the West have creativity. And I usually ask them, what do you mean by creativity then? And they can't even define it. And that's another stereotype that we tend to have of the Chinese rote learning style or what we think is rote learning. But creativity actually is a process and there are three components. And what my research has found is that the Chinese classroom emphasizes one of them, but neglects the other two. In the West, we emphasize numbers two and three, but we neglect number one. So the number one thing is that knowledge is important. So the Chinese believe that content is incredibly important in education. And in progressive circles in the West, we are forgetting that. We tend to focus more on two and three, which is the ability to come at something a different way, original thinking, that's number two. And then number three is internal motivation. In other words, you can have the knowledge and you can have the ability to come at something in a different way. But if you don't have the motivation to do something about it, all of that ability is going to be wasted, right? And if you think about the Chinese classroom, we're never thinking about what kids want or what they're interested in. All of the motivation comes externally rather than internally, right? Whereas in the West, just the fact that you have an elective, you know, I choose rock climbing over disc throwing, or I choose chemistry over biology, the act of a choice shows your own internal interest. And that is the third component. So for creativity, you really need all of these three things to come together, either in a person or in a team or in an institution for you to have for the creative process to work successfully. And so when you break it down like that, you see that it's not so stark just to say, oh, the Chinese can't do creativity. And conversely, in the West, we overemphasize kids who speak up or come at something in an unusual way if they don't know what they're looking at, if they don't have the content or the, in the, or the knowledge, say, in the medical field or in climate change or even in art, they can't move the needle forward, right? We see that, yeah, we see that in culture as well. It's a very home alone spirit, isn't it? This, you know, child genius who can do, who's just so sparky that he can do anything. But, I mean, he needs to have some basic understanding of physics. Absolutely. <laughs> and a lot of work behind it as well. So... I think you're right to pick out this assumption, often lazy assumption, that the Chinese have no original thinking. And it's not just in commentary about schools, it's also in commentary about China's technological achievements in recent years. For example, when we talk about companies like Huawei doing well, it's a lot of it is about state aid, IP theft, and the like, as if that these engineers who have created the world's largest telecoms company have had no original contributions to the sector at all, which, which is a little bit hard to believe, I think. Now, I'm not saying that China is scientifically superior to the West, which I don't think it is, but at least that rote learning, uh, the system uh, has led it somewhere. And perhaps there is a little bit of original thinking in there as well. Well, I think what we're saying, what you and I are both saying is don't reduce all of uh, an entire country to a trope, to a stereotype, right? You really need to look at what's behind it. And, and the other thing to mention about Huawei is Huawei engineers spend almost two times the amount of work hours as, say, like a Silicon Valley engineer. So they may not have these 
open environments where their bosses encourage them to challenge them on a regular basis as we do in Silicon Valley, but maybe they're just outworking the competition. There's other things that they're doing differently that account for, um, for some of the deficiencies that we've seen. And I also wanted to ask you about things that were not academic, so the extracurriculars. When I was little, I was made to go through piano lessons and, and all sorts of other things like calligraphy, painting and dance. And my mum had subscribed to this Chinese teaching of qing qi shu hua, which is music, chess, calligraphy and painting. These are seen as the four virtues for any young educated person. And I heard that a lot when I was complaining about my extracurriculars. In your top Shanghai school, the parents there must have been incredibly competitive about what grade your kids were playing the piano at and so on. Can I tell you a quick story? So one of the Chinese educational forms is, is called you need to start at zero. In other words, when your kid shows up for first grade, they don't need to know a thousand Chinese characters. They don't need to learn how to play piano. They don't need to know their multiplication tables. Let a kid be a kid. Show up at zero. So we did that with our second son. We show up and I go to the violin meeting with a violin teacher. And I realize that I am the only parent in the room whose child doesn't know yet how to play violin. You okay? bought in. You bought I into know. the lies. <laughs> I know. And not only that, after the session, like five parents followed the violin teacher out to his car, right? And they're just following him. I mean, this is the level of intensity. Their kids already knew how to play violin and they're still following the violin teacher out to the parking lot. I can't compete with that. And in... The, the thing that I learned is the policy reform can come through. In other words, Chinese education ministry can say, Jan Fu, lessen the burden. Let's have happy kindergarten, right? Whatever it is, parents have to comply. If you don't change the culture around it, the policy is never going to work. So yeah, extracurriculars are really, really intense there. And, and what do you do? Well, I think that's interesting because how do you change that culture? Like you, I've also spoken to Chinese parents who lament that the system is so pressurizing on their children, but then they say everyone else is doing it. So how do you, it's almost a chicken and egg problem because how do you change that culture when everyone is so competitive? I, I don't have the answer to that. The more options there are, I think it will slowly start to change. You see reform happening for in, in the schools where kids have more options, right? If you're off the golf call track, automatically you're going to have more options and the pressure is going to be less. And I think that's going to start trickling down. The other thing that I think will start happening is that some of these things that they're trying, like allowing kids to take golf call twice or using other metrics to select for college, like community service or reference letters. The problem right now with that is that some of those things can be bought, right? A reference letter can be purchased. Community service, you know, the, the families who can send their kid to Africa to build a library are going to have a leg up on, on that one, right? But some of these things are starting to trickle through. And the more pressure you can take off of that one test, then I think people downstream will have more options. And I think that's it's happening very, very fast. And for much of this conversation, we've been talking about a very middle class or upper middle class experience. But you also spoke to migrant children. And this is not migrants from outside of China, but migrants from within China, but the rural areas who go into the cities who are much, much poorer. For that class divide and, and also indeed in the villages themselves, that education, how different does that look? It looks very different. You know, it's funny. One of the kids that I followed, he failed the high school entrance exam and his mother, who's a migrant worker, I said, look, he can go to vocational school. There are so many well-paid jobs on the vocational track, you know, nursing, for example. He doesn't have to go to the academic track and graduate with the millions of college graduates who can't find jobs in China. 
But the thing is, for that class of people, lower middle class, maybe they're uneducated themselves, they're migrant workers, being able to put a kid through to the end of an academic college career is just a shining light. It's it's just whether or not it's actually financially viable or makes sense, they still want it. So then what Lauren did was she put her son in a Gaokao test prep factory. So when he was 16, he then studied for Gaokao for three years on an alternative track. Instead of going to regular high school, he prepped for the exam and he passed it. And he passed it. He went to, I think it was a tier three college. And the mom's happy, you know, whether or not he then goes off to be a construction worker like his father, it's okay. At least he's graduated from college. So that kind of educational value placed on an academic college degree is really, really hard to fight with. It's like culturally ingrained. So I think it really depends on what class you're coming from, the education level of the parents and what they value. Do you think that that option is open to, I mean, presumably it's not open to all migrant workers because did it cost more to go to this special exam factory? It cost a lot of money. Yes. So she, so you she know, would went have back saved out. Up. She worked as a masseuse. She, she saved up. She had the money. Um, well, she continued to work and, and it was worth it to her to continue to be a migrant for a number of years to be able to finance this for her son. And actually that that brings out a really important part, which is how much parents value education, even if it's at huge financial sacrifices to them. It might be the biggest thing that they spend their money on if if they have to. And I spoke to a mum recently for The Spectator, which I've written about, who asked me, I don't understand why in the West, poor families don't see education as the way out. Even if you're in the mountains or in a village in China, you will see education as the most important thing to happen to your family for your child. And I think that's a really interesting cultural difference that, you know, a migrant worker who has no money for herself, who works as a masseuse, whose husband is a construction worker, will still pay a shed load in order to get her son into college. And one thing that we've not talked about much, and of course we have to talk about, is the propaganda that's in schools. The patriotic education, that's the euphemism. What was that like? I have to say, I feel like it's intensified. My last few years there, and we left at the end of 2019, so about a year and a half ago, it was really starting to get bad. And now, you know, under Xi Jinping, it's gotten even worse just in the last 18 months. I feel at one point, kids had a lot of freedom about what they could say in public and and what they could say in private. But I feel like now the hand of Xi Jinping has now extended even into private spaces, you know, whether it's monitoring WeChat groups or students reporting on other students in classrooms. But as late as 2017, I was sitting in classrooms and seeing teachers and students openly criticizing Xi Jinping, and they could do that comfortably. I don't think that happens anymore. So I think it's become much more intense. That said, there's like a, a nationalism, a patriotism that runs through the education system. And I feel that a lot of that does sink in. At one point, I did feel that the Chinese were, they knew what they were being force fed and they had a different opinion privately. But I feel like those two selves have, have merged a bit. And I would have a hard time having an open conversation with a Chinese person now about some of these things, I think. And I think that goes back to the rote learning as well. I I, um, I studied politics and philosophy at university. So that was what motivated me to talk to people my age in Chinese universities who were interested in politics and philosophy. And to hear them talk about their political and philosophical curricula was just mad. It was just rote learning about Marxism, God, Hegel's and uh, <laughs> or various sort of really opaque theory and, and theology. And, you know, 
they might not agree with it and they're not critically analysing it, but they're learning the key talking points to get that mark in their politics exam in the, in the high school entrance. And actually talking to these students, a lot of them don't believe in what they're saying, but sometimes they internalise things. And, you know, as you say, it's hard to split where you are critically thinking something and where you have just been force-fed that for so many years. Yeah, that's true. And And the other thing to remember is that joining the Communist Youth League or becoming a party member actually comes with amazing benefits, right? So one of the students I followed, he showed me all the papers he had to write about marching down the Red Road and being a good communist and all the theories he had to study. And he went through the motions. But like we talked about, some of it does sink in. And secondly, it gave him a backdoor to college. They gave him a backdoor to jobs that otherwise wouldn't have been available. And those are very powerful incentives. Yeah. And becoming a party member in a top university like Tsinghua or Peking University is a job, essentially, because then you can secure yourself a job um, in a bureaucracy of China's government. And you're an American, so maybe this this reference, but maybe for our listeners in, in Oxford University in, in the UK, you've got the Oxford Union, which is seen as a kind of playing ground for British prime ministers and cabinet ministers. In China's top universities, you do join a party at a young age at university, and then that is seen as a fast track in to the government as well. So yeah, you're right. You know, you've got these material rewards for joining the party, even if you don't believe it yourself. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And finally, I just want to end up on, you know, what's going on with your sons now? Like you, you've moved out of China, you've taken them out of the system. How are they finding that change? And do, do they still maintain some of the merits that you think came from that education? I do. I think so. I mean, you know, a lot of the first, a lot of the benefits first come from being bilingual. There's a lot of research that shows that you're connecting synapses at an early age that maybe wouldn't have been connected if you were a monolingual. So I'm, I'm seeing a lot of that. You know, the the, the just be, and also being able to grasp new material comes very quickly. I think what's been hard is not only language; they're learning German now, but also just learning how to navigate socially because the things that are valued here are very different than what's valued in China. Like it, it is totally accepted to litter your conversation in Shanghai with all kinds of things about how you did in baseball, how you did in math, who's number one in the class. And people just don't talk about that here. You're seen as a freak if you, if you do that so openly. So, you know, we had to have a talk with our kids about that, but they're learning. And I, and I like to think that they're building resilience for the future. I can't say it was easy. The first six months, Literally, my son's looking at me, what, what is this place that we're now a part of? You know, they've both only known China, and even the second one was actually born there. My second one actually, you know, he says I'm from Shanghai, even though he's American. So, yeah, I take some credit for introducing some confusion. But look, in the end, I think it'll serve them. But it has not been easy. I don't necessarily recommend it to people who are faint of heart. <laughs> They haven't campaigned to go back to the strict Chinese schools, have they? You know, we missed it a lot the first six months because it was what we understood. And the funny thing is when you talk to Chinese parents who they hate the Gaokao, but then you ask them whether they're okay changing it, they say, after we get through, because it's comfortable, it's what you understand, how you understand how to navigate the system, don't change it till after I'm gone. And I think we went through some of that here. Like, it was really, really difficult China, the Chinese school system, but we understood it. We knew how to navigate it. And now this is just completely different. Lenora Chu, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Chinese Whispers. I hope you enjoyed it. If you're listening to this podcast on the Best of the Spectator channel, remember that Chinese Whispers has its own channel as well. If you just search Chinese Whispers wherever you get your podcast from, you will always get the latest episode first there. If you have any feedback, positive or negative, but preferably constructive, please do email me at podcast@spectator.co.uk. And I'd also love it if you left a review or told your family and friends about the podcast. It's the way to help us grow. So thanks so much for listening, and join us again next time. Bye.